are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, so pleased that you could join me today for our Thursday afternoon question and answer time. I want to give a special welcome to our TWR360 audience, and uh, what a tremendous ministry Trans World Radio has had through the years, both with their shortwave radio ministry and with uh, their now their online presence, TWR360. So we're grateful for our partnership with TWR360, and again, so, so glad that you could join us today for our Thursday afternoon question and answer program. Here's how we do it. I begin with a lead question. Lead question comes in through social media, leftover question that we didn't get to from a previous program, uh, comment on a YouTube video, whatever it is. Uh, So we begin with a lead question, and then after the lead question, uh, we take your questions from the live chat uh, sent to our moderator who sees them on the live chat and then forwards them to me. And we're generally looking for questions that are either connected to our lead question, those get higher priority, Or we're looking for questions that uh, would appeal to sort of the broadest audience, questions that uh, might have the broadest interest from those of you. But if you don't get your question answered, don't despair. We make record of those questions and we write them down and look for them at another time. So anyway, glad you could join us today. And I want to get into today's lead question, which really has to do with pre-internet Christianity and Bible study. Uh, The question comes from Smith or Smitha via Facebook, who asked this question. I would like to know about the experience of pastor while he studied the Word of God in a time period with no social media sermons, Google search, digital notebooks, etc. So really what Smith is asking about is what it was like to preach and teach before our modern internet age. And I do want to acknowledge that the whole field of Bible study has been radically changed by the internet. Now, I started teaching and preaching the Bible before personal computers were a thing, and then before the internet became a resource for Bible study. Interestingly enough, I started using a personal computer for the preparation of my own Bible studies, my own teaching and preaching ministry, very early, uh, in the mid-1980s. And actually, it was my early use of these personal computers that led to my Bible line at uh, early in the history of the internet, about 1996. That's a whole other question. We can get to that later. But I, I just want to know that, want you to know that uh, I, I do know what it was like to study, to prepare research before the emergence of personal computers, even though I started using one in my mid-20s, and then uh, what it's like afterwards. And and I want you to know that I think that it's exciting that there are so many resources available, resources so easily found, resources so inexpensive, and taking up so little space. And friends, we don't have very sophisticated operation right now. You can see on the camera behind me that there's uh, lots of books back there. Over to my left, there's a shelf full, uh, floor to ceiling of books. 
inside our home. We've got bookshelves after bookshelves. We've got a stairway that we custom built bookshelves in just to be able to find more places to, to store books. Let me tell you, old school Bible resources where everything's done with books, it's a hassle. It's a hassle to take care of a couple thousand books. Uh, not to mention those who have libraries who are much larger. And I know plenty of pastors and Bible teachers who have uh, book collections or libraries much, much larger than mine. And I can just testify, it's not easy to store, to deal with, to get with, to catalog, to access all these different kinds of books. So in many ways, we live in a golden age right now with Bible study resources. Yet some of this comes at a price. And this is the main price, I would say, that it is. And that is the effect that Google and modern research habits have on the way that we think. Now, it's true with the internet and all, we have far more resources within easy reach. But we are also subtly, but definitely being trained to scan screens for information and then to make quick generalizations. Friends, let's face it, that's just how we do research today. We do a Google search, we look up a few things, we scan a Wikipedia article, and we think we know something. And look, it's true, you do know something, just not very much. The habits of modern internet research work against deep, thorough reading and thinking. We are trained by our uh, study platforms today. We are trained to scan and swipe and to think we know more than we do. Now, we, we should work against these habits. We should make sure that we don't do Bible study the same way that we work through a social media feed. Now, friends, I, I look at social media I look at Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. I don't spend that much time on Facebook. I don't spend that much time on Instagram. But I do look like to look through a Twitter or X feed just to, you know, see what's going on and see what people are talking about. And for me, when I go through it, I'm scanning and swiping. I'm scanning and swiping. I'm not, I'm not lingering very long usually on things. And that's okay for a social media feed. But I can't let my Bible study be like that. Bible study, I need to change my habits of thinking and say, I'm going to dig in for deep, intense, focused Bible study. And friend, I'm here to tell you, you can do this. You can enjoy the benefits of our modern resources. And by the way, isn't it awesome, the modern resources we have? Right now on our chat, because I can see it because I can glance down at my screen, right now in our chat, we're running a live poll during the chat. What a cool little thing to do. I invite you, if you're watching right now live, that you respond to that live poll. Well, what a cool thing that we can do. We can connect. We can, we can do these things. We can get reach to resources. All that is a tremendous blessing. But you've got to take the benefits of the reach and the resources that we have and adopt with it the ability to slow down and focus and think deeply when you're working with Bible study. And friends, by the power of the Holy Spirit and training the habits of your mind, you can do it. Now, I just wanna speak quickly now about 
um, some of the old school resources that I used. Use books to study with. But as much as I can, I use digital resources. I do. They don't take up, up as much room. I can take them with them with me wherever I go. And friends, I travel a fair amount. And in my travels, man, it's so much easier than rather to take a suitcase full of books to take everything uh, on a computer and I can just access it quickly. So I use a lot of electronic books. Sometimes when I have favorite books that are not in electronic versions, I will take scans of those books and bring the scans with me. So let me just explain quickly and just run through the next five minutes or so some of these old school Bible resources. Uh, let me begin. I'll begin with one of the first Bible resources that I ever bought, and that was a concordance. I wonder if people even know what a concordance is today. Here it is, one of the first Bible resources. Now, the covers are worn off. There's no back covers, no, because I've used this thing to death, although I don't think I've touched it for 10 years. of concordance, but as a young kid at attending Calvary Chapel, Riverside, and going to their little bookstore, I bought Cruden's Complete Concordance. This was the first book beyond a Bible that I ever bought in my Christian life. And I have worked this thing to pieces. And a concordance just looks up. Uh, where does the word uh, Jacob appear? The name Jacob. Where does the word law or love appear? And it just gives you all the listings. So a concordance was something we use just search functions now on the internet to replace that. Nave's topical Bible. That was a big one that I used a lot. And again, it just goes through and gives different categories. Uh, Nave's topical Bible. Uh, the New Bible Dictionary. Man, this was a great thing. It's just a Bible dictionary. Introductions to books of the Bible. Israel, a survey of its history. Joshua, the book of magic and sorcery. Messiah. Just a great basic resource. These were old school general resources that I and many other people use. Again, today we just use Google searches and such like that to get the same or similar kinds of information. Okay, and then after that, uh, we would have original language resources. Let me look for those. Uh, lifting up these heavy books. Um, you know, one of my chief ones with that would be the Englishman's Greek Concordance. Man, this was a cool resource because it was a concordance telling you where the words are, but according to the Greek. And so you'd have to be able to know how to read or work your way through a little bit of Greek. And then you could find all the uses of different Greek words. This was a very big resource that I used back in the day. Then to define those Greek words, you'd use resources like this. Uh, the Little Kittle, the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. This is a one-volume abridgment of a set that I have. I don't know, maybe 13 volumes of the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. It would help you define word used, words used in the New Testament according to its classical usage, its Old Testament usage in the Septuagint, and its biblical usage. Uh, very helpful. Uh, a companion thing to that was something I used a lot was the Dictionary of New Testament Theology. This is just the first volume, but it was a similar kind of resource. And then you would use commentators that were helpful with the Greek, such as this one from A.T. Robertson, his word pictures in the New Testament. Uh, A.T. Robertson, Kenneth Wiest, uh, William Vincent. Uh, these were guys that were just helpful with their basic accessible Greek commentaries. Um, those were some original language resources that I would use. Then uh, I would get into some general overview commentaries. 
these were commentaries that I still use a lot. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, an exposition of the whole Bible. Uh, this is a few paragraphs. And G. Campbell Morgan was very helpful in doing that. Um, then also by G. Campbell Morgan, uh, searchlights through the word, uh, from the word of God. And this, he would take one verse from every chapter of the Bible and just give a little thought on it. And uh, this would be very helpful. Um, again, just to go through and as you're teaching through the Bible, you go through and see what G. Campbell Morgan said. And this is a very similar book by F.B. Meyer, Our Daily Homily. Again, uh, he takes one verse from every chapter of the Bible and he goes through and he uh, gives a devotional thought on it. Again, not heavy, not deep, not analytical, but you, you get some great nuggets from things like that. Okay, there's that. Um, what other ones? Well, I would have older commentators that I would look at. And here's some of the books of the older commentators. These are all resources that I use online now. The commentators such as Matthew Poole. Uh, for years, when I would read Matthew Poole, anytime I'm teaching verse by verse through book of the Bible, I'd see what Matthew Poole said. Now I use these resources online. Um, Adam Clark, you'll see if you look at my commentary online, I use a lot of Adam Clark. Again, now you can use it online, but this is a nice set of Adam Clark's commentary through the entire Bible that I would look at. And then another commentator that I found, oh, in the... 90s sometime was John Trapp. Uh, he was an old Puritan commentator, and he went verse by verse through the whole Bible. And this was another older commentator that I would use. Uh, now look, um, modern resources give a lot more access to the commentary work of early Christian writers. Of these three, I believe um, John Trapp would be the oldest, uh, earlier than Matthew Poole, and John Trapp is writing from the 1600s. But of course, there's a lot of Christian work done before that on that. And that's been made accessible through great commentary sets, such as the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series, edited by Thomas Oden. And, and that's something that I'm using more now and incorporating. And I'm using those as digital resources. I don't have that set in print. Um, that's some of the older commentators. And then you get to a list of more modern commentators. Uh, again, you would have guys like um, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse on Genesis. On our YouTube channel, I'm teaching through the book of Genesis, and uh, Barnhouse is a guy that I'll quote from time to time. Uh, kind of devotional in its character, but it's a great um, thought as you're going through the uh, book of Genesis. It's not the only commentary I would use by any means through Genesis, but one of them. Uh, John Walverd is a great commentator on prophetic books of the Bible, Daniel, uh, Revelation, Ezekiel, uh, great work on some of those books, uh, much appreciate him. Uh, John Stott uh, wrote commentaries on many books of the New Testament. This is his commentary on the book of Acts, the spirit, the church, and the world, a great commentary on Acts, something very helpful. One of my favored New Testament commentators is D. Edmund Hebert. Uh, great work, great exposition. His commentary on James is one of the better ones that I've run across. So D. Edmund Hebert is a guy that I would recommend. Uh, William Newell, his commentary on Romans. He also has a commentary on Hebrews and the book of Revelation. 
Romans verse by verse, this is a great commentary. Not particularly academic, but really good, really helpful in helping you to understand the text. Uh, Now, let me introduce you to one of my favorite Bible commentators, Leon Morris. Leon Morris, the Australian Anglican. This commentary on the Gospel of John is one of the best books I've ever read. Not mentioning just one of the best commentaries, one of the best books that I've ever read. What an outstanding academic, but yet has a way of getting to the heart of the Gospel of John. Uh, Surely, Leon Morris is one of my favorite New Testament commentators. Uh, I appreciate a lot of Derek Kidner in the Old Testament. Um, Here is his collection in the the Tyndale series on Psalms, both Psalms 1 through 72 and Psalm 73 through 150. Derek Kidner is a great Old Testament commentator. I've also appreciated in the same Tyndale series, Joyce Baldwin's work uh, on the the Old Testament. I I thought that she's done some great work. And then um, this is a good series. A little bit uneven because it draws on the work of a lot of different commentators, but the Expositor's Bible Commentary sense, uh, set is good. Now, all these resources I've just shown to you, for the most part, I use all those resources now uh, digitally, uh, through logos, through other websites that have those uh, commentaries. So most of this work I'm using digitally now, if I go to it, and I still have the books in print I'm slowly kind of giving them away and getting rid of them, but I, I really value these um, commentaries and I use them more digitally just because it's more convenient. Other examples of older commentaries, F.B. Meyer. Now this isn't strictly a commentary, but it's his work on the life of Abraham. And so if, if I'm teaching through those books in Genesis, those chapters in Genesis relevant to the life of Abraham, I'd be using this one a lot. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, not only did he do the broader works that I discussed, but he did some also just regular legitimate commentaries, such as uh, the Gospels, uh, the Book of Acts I have over there. Um, Alan Redpath, sermon series that he did on the life of David, the making of a man of God. Man, this is a great book. I also appreciate Redpath's work on the Book of Joshua. Uh, The book of Nehemiah, great stuff by Alan Redpath. Um, The book of Psalms by Alexander McLaren. Uh, This is from the Expositor's Bible. But uh, Alexander McLaren was a great preacher in Victorian England, the same time Spurgeon was alive. I benefited a lot from this work going through the book of Psalms. There's another commentator that I didn't draw any of his books, and I don't know why, and I'm looking up here to see... But James Montgomery Boyce, I've really appreciated a lot of his work, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament. So James Montgomery Boyce is another guy that I would recommend. And then there would be just sort of some background resources that I would recommend to you too. If I was going to teach through a book of the Bible, I would use background resources such as this. This is a series, The Legends of the Jews by Lewis Ginsburg. And this is just a collection of rabbinical legends. I really don't know if you can get this online or in digital format, but man, this is an interesting story. Not Bible, of course, but literally legends of the Jews. Interesting stuff. Uh, Then there's um, a book like this, Major Cities of the Biblical World, edited by R.K. Harrison. Look, if you're going to do a study on um, Corinth or... uh, what else? Uh, Ephesus. Great background on what those cities were like. 
Um, and then, of course, the Dictionary of Biblical Archaeology. This would be another general resource. Hey, again, if I'm doing a study on Corinth, what have they found in Corinth? I could just look it up in this dictionary on uh, biblical archaeology. Now, I do want to say, too, that I've read a lot of resources by Charles Spurgeon. And uh, to get old school on you, again, I mostly use Spurgeon today digitally, but I have the collection of his books and prints. And for years and years, I would read Spurgeon in print uh, and I would use this index. Uh, for example, if I was going to teach through Genesis chapter 32, I'd go through the index and find all the sermons that Spurgeon preached on Genesis 32. And I would use that as part of my study, start of my research. Now, you may or may not know that I have a absolutely free Bible commentary online at EnduringWord.com at BlueLetterBible.com. Uh, BlueLetterBible.org, I think, is the, the actual web address. Uh, but we do put also some of my commentaries in print. But I, I would want you to know, this is the same stuff that you get online. But if you want it in print, we have many, not all, of the books of the Bible that we have commentary on in print as well as online. If you want them, you can go to Amazon and order them. That's fine. But I just want you to know, it's the same content that you'll get online. Matter of fact, we're able to update and make corrections and revisions to the online content that we can't do so easily to the print content. If you're interested in taking a look at what resources I use, there's a very significant page you can look at, and that is the bibliography page at EnduringWord.com. At that bibliography page, you can just see, uh, here's the commentaries I used in my research and referred to in my notes through the different books of the Bible. You can just check those out as you make your way through the Bible. So uh, those are just some of the things to look at. Um, that's some of the resources that we have. It might be helpful for you. Uh, let, let me recommend to you some good online resources. Uh, EnduringWord.com, uh, Blue Letter Bible, Precept Austin. We'll put the links to these in the descriptions or maybe in the live chat as well, because these are great clearinghouses to get uh, online Bible resources. So um, we're also going to put in the description a quick list of some of the benefits, the uses of a good Bible commentary. Uh, I'll just read them to you quickly here. Number one, to confirm what you've already learned in your study. Number two, to correct misunderstandings from your study. Number three, to show you things that you may have missed in the passage. Number four, to show you connections with other Bible passages that you may have missed. Uh, number five, to show you things from the historical context that you didn't know. Number six, to show you things from biblical languages that you didn't know. Number seven, to show you how the passage has been understood through history. That's always helpful. Uh, number eight, to give better words to what you've seen in the passage. Number nine, to give good illustrations of what you've seen in the passage. Or number 10, to give good applications to what you've seen in the passage. All of these are good uses of a Bible commentary and then we will have that within the um, uh, the details, the uh, the so description of this video when we post it. All right, or I think it's there right now if you wanted to look at it. Okay, enough with the question that came in from Smitha. Um, let me just go on and go to your questions. 
Before I hit your questions coming in from our moderator, um, I do just want to give an announcement here. We have opened up the uh, registration for an Israel tour that we're making next year. So next year, I'm going to host an Israel tour with Enduring Word. If you'd like to join me and some other great pastors who are helping me be leading the tour, you're welcome to sign up. Here's the website, tours.enduringword.com. We'll put the link up on the live chat uh, or we'll put the link up uh, in the show description. But it's simply this, tours.enduringword.com. That's our website for the tours that we offer in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be on a cruise through Bible lands. And then um, next year, 2024, we're planning in November an Enduring Word, crew, uh, Enduring Word Tour of the Holy Land. We would love for you to be able to join myself and my wife, Ingalil, as we lead you on this Israel tour. I think it's going to be a great time. So if you're interested, sign up at tours.enduringword.com. Okay. That's it for uh, all of that. Let's get on to questions from our moderator, from you through our moderator. Uh, Here's a question from David who asks, in last week's question and answer, I believe you articulated a view that we inherit guilt from Adam. I don't understand how that reconciles with Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Am I missing something? All right, well, David, let me go look that up here. Hebrews chapter 2, excuse me. Um, Let me just look this up. Hebrews chapter 2, and you said uh, starting, okay, here we go. Um, Starting at verse 14. I'll read the passage here. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He himself, that's referring to Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be made a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to be make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. David, let me speak to you, and I'm going to do you the favor of speaking directly. I don't quite understand how your question connects with this passage from Hebrews chapter 2, except if your focus is this. That in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. If your question is, if we inherited guilt from Adam, and Jesus did not inherit guilt from Adam, then how could it be said that he was made like his brethren in all things? If that's your question, I have an answer for that. If your question is pointedly something else, then I'm not really getting it. But David, I would just simply explain this. That that phrase from Hebrews, that he was made like his brethren in all things he had to be made like his brethren, obviously that's a figure of speech. 
because Jesus was not made like his brethren in all things in that he was not actually a sinner. Now, we're all sinners. Whether we inherited guilt from Adam or not, we're all sinners. And Jesus was not made like us in that sense, except for the fact that on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he was a sinner. Do you see the difference there? So Jesus had some experience of what it was like to be treated as if he was a sinner. That's what happened on the cross. God the Father treated Jesus Christ, his only son, as not only as if he was a sinner, but as if he was every sinner. He stood in the place of all sin, and he paid for that at the cross. So here's the point I'm trying to make by that, is that that phrase, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that's a figure of speech. It does not encompass uh, every absolute sin or condition of humanity. Jesus, in his unfallen state, was exactly like Adam in his unfallen state. That's why Paul, in Romans chapters 5 and 6, can refer to Jesus as the second Adam, the last Adam. And so, was Jesus completely human Yes, but he was completely human in his unfallen state, having not received inherited guilt from Adam, yet being completely human like that. So, David, I hope I'm catching that's what you meant through your question, and uh, I I hope that answers it for you. Let me move on to the next question from Johan. Johan asks, I have some authority over customers at my work. Sometimes I want to show grace, but other times I don't. How do I continue to enforce policy and rules as an employee or steward, but also show grace as a believer? Okay, Johan, um, let me assume in your question, by the way, great question. It's a very practical question. How do we live out our Christianity at our place of employment? Johan asks, How can I be as gracious as possible to my customers? Well, Johan, this is what you should do. You should be as gracious as possible without working against the interests of your employer. If the interests of your employer would require you to sin against your customers, then you should probably start looking for another line of work. But you don't want to sin against your employer, but within that framework, you should be as gracious and accommodating, as helpful to your customers as possible. So that's simply how I would define what your policy should be. You do work for your employer and you need to honor your employer. You need to submit to your employer as long as your employer isn't requiring you to sin. So you want to be as gracious as possible, as helpful as possible to your customers, to the people that you interact with, as much as that would be allowed by the interests of your employer. So, Johan, that's the way that I would phrase it and approach it. Um, As a Christian, we should try to be gracious and helpful to people. That's a good Christian conduct. But again, um, we shouldn't work against our employer to do that. 
And if we feel like we're in a position where that's required, then as I said before, we should probably do the best we can to find other employment. Hope that's helpful for you, Johan. Next question comes from Belinda, who asks, I just got the complete Jewish study Bible. I love it. Have you looked at it? If so, what are your thoughts? Um, Belinda, I'm looking back. I think I may have. No, this is what I have. This is what I'm thinking of. I received this book as a gift. The Jewish Annotated New Testament. And it's something like what you're expecting there, a Jewish study Bible. Uh, To be honest, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at this. I've only looked up a few things. But look, it can be very helpful for Christians to understand how Jewish interpreters have approached the text. I'm not saying that Jewish or rabbinic interpreters of the Bible are always correct. Christians should not think that. We see the Bible differently than traditional Jewish or rabbinic teachers. And that's okay. Uh, Because seeing Jesus as the Messiah is going to change the way that you look at the Bible. Seeing prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ is going to change how you look at the Bible. Understanding the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jesus Christ is going to change how you look at the Bible. So while it may be helpful and illustrative to look at what um, rabbinic Judaism has seen in the Bible. I I do that often, and I'm thankful for it. Sometimes in my teaching, you'll see, and the rabbis would observe this, and certain rabbis would say this about it. It can be helpful, but we just don't sort of yield our biblical interpretation to uh, rabbinic sources. We look to other sources as well. Thank you for that, Belinda. I I hope you find it helpful and just uh, read it with an idea to weigh and consider what it says. Sometimes Christians give way too much weight to commentaries. Look, let me be very transparent with you all. Uh, Sometimes people give too much weight to my Bible commentary. Look, it's a commentary. It's my teaching. It's my understanding, my explanation of the text. And do I think it's correct? Well, yes. Not that there's not corrections I make along the way. But in general, I think that what I teach, what I present about the scriptures is correct. Great. But I don't think that I'm infallible. I think every Christian should be a Berean. Do you remember what it said in Acts? What was it? Chapter 17? Or was it chapter 14? Maybe it was chapter 14, verse 17. Where Paul visited those in Berea who were of more noble character because they diligently searched the scriptures to see if the things that Paul said were so. And friends, if that's something that people should do with Paul's teaching, how much more should they do it with my teaching or anybody else's teaching? So uh, thank you for that, Belinda. I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, uh, next question comes from Lupi, who asks, can you please explain... Because although they knew God, they did not glorify God in Romans 121. What what does it mean that they knew God? Lupe, I'll just give you a very basic understanding of that. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says this. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here Paul is exposing some of the darkness of the pagan world. 
uh, those who have rejected God as creator. And, And this is what Paul's getting at. They knew God. They knew God in their conscience. In Romans chapter one, Paul's careful to reveal that God has revealed himself to all of humanity in two ways, in creation and in conscience. I'm telling you, friends, all of humanity is accountable to know something about the true living God through creation and through conscience. And there are many people who reject that knowledge. There are many people who look at the creation and say, well, it happened by itself. Well, it just created itself. Well, uh, evolution explains everything. Um, the Big Bang explains everything. And, and they just go on and, 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 and give that kind of perspective. Friends, I just want to tell you that God has revealed himself to humanity through creation, and he has revealed himself to humanity through conscience. And there are many people who have taken that knowledge of God that God has given to humanity, and they have rejected it. They did not glorify God with that knowledge. Therefore, they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. I was listening just the other day and um, to a uh, podcast from a show that brings on, brings together Christians and skeptics and they talk about Christianity and all the such. And as a part of that show, uh, somebody who was a atheist asked the question, hey, uh, uh, why hasn't God made himself more visible? Uh, Why hasn't God given us more persuasive proof? Uh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe God. uh, But if God were real, why didn't he give us more persuasive proof? And there were various people who tried to address the concerns of this man, but none of them addressed the concern that the way that I thought it should be. I tell you what I thought they should have responded with. Now, I'm not saying that their responses were all bad, but they didn't respond with this, which is the way I think they should have responded. They should have responded, dear sir, the living God added humanity to his deity and walked among us for 33 years. And he lived and he taught and he did miracles and he confirmed himself and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. God dwelt among us and gave us a written record that we can rely on to demonstrate all this. What what do you mean God hasn't done enough? I I must say, and and forgive me for this, but I just don't have a lot of patience for people who fold their arms and say, I'm not convinced God should have done more. What more can God do than add humanity to his deity and literally walk among us for 33 years, do miracles, do signs, predict prophecy, teach like nobody's ever taught, live like nobody else has lived, live an unimpeachable life, die on a cross, rise from the dead. And you're saying, well, he should do more. See, Lupi, when people reject God, they're doing it despite the evidence not because of the evidence. And that's what Paul's putting their finger on, his finger on in Romans chapter one. Everybody has some knowledge of God by creation and by conscience. And then we add to it the glorious revelation that God has given us in and through his word, all the better. So that, that's what it's getting at there, Lupi. Thank you for your question. Let me go to the next question here from Ryan. Ryan asks, Pastor David, good afternoon. 
I could use some guidance. I'm trying to minister to someone about Jesus's love for them to try to get them to see past their childhood trauma of sexual abuse advice. Well, Ryan, um, first of all, let me just say, God bless you for your heart in that. Um, There's so many things to think about when somebody has been the victim of sexual abuse. First of all, if there is any legal recourse to them, it should be pursued. Friends, people who sexually abuse other people should be brought to justice. This is not complicated. And, and Christians should not try to sweep such things under the rug or handle them in-house in the church. Uh, people who abuse children sexually should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Now, Ryan, I understand that maybe the situation you're talking about, that there is no legal recourse. But I would just say as a general principle, wherever there is legal recourse to be had, it should be pursued. That's number one. But number two, I think what this person needs is perhaps some counseling from somebody who's skilled to know how to deal with people in trauma Uh, know how to deal with people who have suffered these significant wounds and hurts. Those counselors are out there. But even in the midst of that, what this person needs is a living, growing, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I'm not saying that a good relationship with Jesus is like a magic wand that makes all your other problems go away. Please, I'm not saying that. I don't believe it's true in real life. Just because I know Jesus doesn't mean that I don't need to see a doctor for a broken arm. And just because I know Jesus, it doesn't mean that I may not need to go to a counselor for some other good biblical guidance and and good guidance having to do with my health and other things that would be helpful. But I will say this, that I can get all those other things and still be lacking in my life without that good foundation of a relationship with Jesus. So really, Ryan, love this person in the name of the Lord and help them to pursue spiritual growth and spiritual depth and help. And this will be a pathway for them to perhaps seek the help they need in other areas of their life. But we can't neglect the basics of Christian living, relating to God through prayer, worship, the fellowship of the saints, personal Bible reading and Bible study, these in collection, in community, working together, help to form a foundation for a healthy Christian life. And that leads to a foundation to which other things and great healing can be built upon. So Ryan, that's probably the most direct answer that I can give. Um, If legal recourse is possible. It should be pursued. If not for the sake of that particular individual who suffered the abuse, then for other people would suffer abuse from the same person. Legal recourse should be taken if possible. But then number two, um, seek out whatever counseling may be appropriate um, by people who know these fields in greater depth. But then number three, strengthen the spiritual basics in life. I think that's very helpful.
Thank you for that, Ryan. Let me go on to Tunnel Banan, Shugotre. Hello from Sweden. I recently got extremely angry at my mother's atheist cousin when he said he knew gay conversion therapy is impossible. And he said that I wanted him to go to hell for being gay. What should I do? Well, Tunnel Banan, Shugotre, let me just say these two things. Number one, it is very important to the, I don't know what to call, the homosexual community, the pro-gay community, the, the, the homosexual rights community, whatever you want to call that, that group of both homosexuals and their ideological allies. It's very important for them to communicate the message that no one can change their sexual orientation, that it is impossible for a person to change their sexual orientation. Now, I I don't believe that's true. Now, let me say this. I I do believe that perhaps it's true for some people. Maybe there's some people who have only ever been sexually attracted to people of their own sex. A A male who's only ever been sexually attracted to males. Maybe that's the case. And maybe it'll remain that case for that person's entire life. But that's not what people are getting at. What they're getting at is to say, it's impossible for anyone to change their sexual orientation. And that I do not believe. I do not believe because there are people who have. There are people who have been absolutely committed male or female homosexuals and today are attracted to and content in married relationships with people from the opposite sex. At one time, they were exclusively same-sex attracted. Now they are attracted and content with sexual relationships with people of the other sex. Now, I'm not saying it happens in every case, but there is an agenda in the homosexual community and their allies today, among many in them, to say that it's impossible for anyone to change their orientation. And I I would just say that that's not true. And again, maybe it's true in an individual's case, but it's not true universally. But here's the other thing I would say, Tunnel Banan Shugotre. People often say things like, you want me to go to hell. This is my response. Friend, It's not in my power or in my desire to send you to hell. I have absolutely no control over that. God has not put me in charge of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. But God has given us a book. And in his book, I think God says, and he speaks to the internal destiny of people who reject Jesus Christ and reject the work that Jesus Christ wants to do in the life of the individual. If that means that you or others are going to hell, that's not in my hands. That's not in my authority. That's something that you have to deal with. That's in charge of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the judge of all humanity. Not me, not you, not anybody else. So you shouldn't care what I think of you. You should care everything of what Jesus Christ thinks. But just make sure you're going by the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of your imagination, 
not the hippie Jesus, the flower power Jesus, the, uh, the uh, uh, conservative Jesus, this, the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus that we're going to have to deal with. So that's how I would respond to that, both of those questions, Tunal Banan. Uh, Jesus Christ has the power to change lives, and um, Jesus Christ is the judge of all the world. Let me go on to the next question here. Uh, Sisimon asks, Hey, Pastor David, what is your routine before going to give a message preached to a congregation? I find myself having to lead the men's Bible study a few times and was wondering the best way to prepare. Sisimon, I heard from a friend of mine, and I don't think this was original to him, but I remember hearing it from him at least on one occasion, a man named Nate Holdridge, who spoke of it like this. The idea is this. You want to read yourself full and then write yourself empty. And for me, I would say you do that twice. First, I read myself full with the Bible text. I just go over me and my Bible and I try to break down the scriptures. I try to organize it. I try to explain it. I try to make connection with other biblical passages. I, I just try to organize it. This is how I want to present the thoughts on this is what this passage says. This is how it applies. Just me and my Bible. This is how it connects with other passages of scriptures. Me and my Bible. That's where it begins. I read myself full and I write myself empty. Then I go to Bible resources. Commentaries the kind of things I've showed yourself before. And I go through commentaries and I read myself full and I write myself empty. Then with whatever information, whatever help I may have received from the commentaries, then I integrate that with what I've already observed about the text. So I join the two. So I read myself full, I write myself empty twice. Once, first, just with the Bible text, Second, with the, in, uh, with the help of Bible commentaries, and then I integrate the two of those and out of that craft and make a message. That's the very most basic, essential way that I can explain how to do that. Now, if you take a look at our YouTube channel, I think that I have a section there, how to prepare a Bible study. Just look that up on our YouTube channel, and I think you can find how to prepare a Bible study, and uh, that'll be helpful. So, there you go. Hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Sisamon 7. And God bless you in your teaching and preaching work. Let me go on to the next question from Judd with a G, who asks, If drunkenness is a sin, why would Jesus make so much wine at his first miracle knowing that people were going to get drunk? As a former alcoholic, this drives me crazy. All right, Judd with a G. I think I have a very simple, basic answer question. By the way, may I say, good question. Jesus made a lot of wine, okay? But what did he do with that wine or what was done with the wine? Well, first of all, please remember this was a wedding and there were a lot of guests. So a lot of wine, but a lot of guests. Number two, the celebration of the wedding would continue a good long time. Uh... So a lot of people to spread the wine out among over a long period of time so that nobody would necessarily get drunk or inebriated by that. And then number two, uh, there are some commentators who believe that there was plenty of wine left over that the wedding couple sold 
sort of as a uh, wedding gift from Jesus to the bridal couple. Here, uh, we filled these, what was it, four or five water pots? Five water pots, I think. And let's say they only used one or two of them. Then the remaining uh, three or four, they could sell the wine from that because it was good wine. And with that sold wine, it was sort of a wedding gift to the bridal couple. There is nowhere in the text that I'm remembering, this is in John chapter three, is it not? John chapter three, John chapter two. There is nowhere in there that I'm remembering that it says that they drank all that wine at the wedding party. So it may very well be that there was wine left over that was sold for the benefit of the bridal couple. But Judd, I think that's a great question. I love it when people ask questions like this. Well, why did this happen? What did they do with this? And so I'd give you those three reasons. Uh, First of all, there was not drunkenness at that wedding party because Jesus was there and was supervising things. Uh, Number one, because there were a lot of guests to spread the wine out. Number two, there was a lot of wine, a lot of time in which to drink the wine. And then number three, uh, there's nothing in the text that says that they drank it all at the wedding. Okay, next question comes from Belinda, who asks, question, would you leave a church before addressing the issues of not screening with the leaders, keeping quiet on issues of homosexuality, having guest pastors that have been known to be a false teaching into the word? Um, Here's a double question. I'll read Dan's question too. So Belinda's question basically has to, would you leave a church before speaking to the leaders about areas that you think uh, are filled with compromise. Secondly, uh, from Dan, I know a believer looking for a church who said that she left hers because it would not have LGBTQ in the church. I spoke about love and the importance of not changing the Bible, but that we must not affirm open sin. How would you handle this? Okay, uh, similar questions, but let me address them separately. First of all, Belinda All I can give you is a general answer. Because oftentimes, individual situations are different. But I can give you a general answer. Generally, Belinda, a person should leave such a church and let the leadership know why. Uh, They maybe will let the leadership know why after they've left the church. Maybe as they're leaving the church. But if you are leaving a church because you think that church is in compromise doctrinally, ethically, morally, and the compromise is so significant that you should leave, then I think it's fair for you to let the church know. This can be done in a letter. This can be done in an email. Of course, you should think through it very carefully. And you should assume that that email would be spread about, that other people would read it too. Don't presume on the confidentiality of the leadership. They may feel free to let other people see it. So you want to be careful how you phrase things, how you word it. You want it to be true and accurate and reflective, not only of the truth, but of your heart. But here's simply what I would say, is that generally speaking, yes, you should let them know. You should say, uh, dear pastor, even though we've received some benefit for your church, we're leaving the church, and this is why, because we believe that you're in compromise on this and this and this issue. I think that's entirely fair. Um, and so, yes, Belinda, I would do that. Again, I, I could conceive of situations in which that isn't the right thing to do, so I'm not giving that as an absolute, but as a general principle, I would say, yes, that's how it should be done. 
And then Dan's question, um, how would you handle it when someone has left a church because they would not affirm um, LGBTQ in the church? Well, Dan, um, churches should not be affirming of sinful lifestyles, period. And homosexuality is a sin, according to the Bible. The practice of homosexuality is to practice a sinful lifestyle. And if Christians are saying, or if a church is saying that that's fine, that that's great, they're in error. And if this person is looking for a church that will affirm those things, then they're looking for a church that will affirm sinful conduct. And how else do you say other than that's bad? This person has a wrong understanding of what they should look for in a church. And Dan, you said the right things. Uh, of course, we should love. Of course, we should that. But to affirm open sin, to call Listen, the Bible says that for a man to lie with a man as he would lie with a woman is an abomination. And if people can look at something that God calls an abomination and say that it's awesome, there's something wrong there. And look, I, I don't even want to hear it about, oh, eating shellfish is also an abomination. Different context entirely. So don't, don't trot that business out here. You're just telling me that you don't understand the Bible. But the conduct of homosexuality is clearly called an abomination and rejected in both the Old and the New Testaments, period. Doesn't mean we hate the people who practice it. No, not at all. What are you talking about? Jesus Christ loves sinners and calls all to repentance. But for a church to take something that God calls an abomination and to call it awesome. Not a good place for any church. They're forfeiting their responsibility as communicators of God's word and the good news. Hope that's helpful for you there, Dan. Let me go on to now the lightning round. Marilyn says, hello, Pastor David from Shreveport, Louisiana. Hello, Marilyn. My question was, why was Miriam the only one punished with leprosy when both she and Aaron spoke against Moses marrying the Ethiopian woman? Marilyn, good question. I think I discussed that in my commentary. I would give two suggestions. Number one, that may be suggested that Miriam was the leader in that. That maybe Aaron played a minor role, but Miriam was really the leader in this opposition. That's one suggestion. The other suggestion is, is God spared Aaron because of his role as high priest. And God didn't want to disqualify Aaron from the priesthood at that time and place. And therefore, uh, though Aaron was disciplined, it was not in the same way as Miriam. So I think both of those could have been true. That Miriam was really the ringleader. She had a leading place in that sin. And number two, Aaron's status as high priest made it much, made a different dynamic and why God didn't afflict him with leprosy. Uh, so that, that's what I would say on that, Marilyn. Uh, next question comes from Shell, who asks, in a recent question on the website Quora, it was saying that Moses did not or will not go to heaven. Could you clarify this for me? Um, Shell, I don't know what that's talking about. Moses was unique in that he died, was buried on Mount Moab, 
And as is reported later on in Jude, there was some dispute over his body. It's a little bit mysterious. We don't have all the information we wish we had on that. But I would say very much that Moses did go to heaven, as is evident from the fact that later on he appears on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. So um, Moses seems to have had a blessed existence in the afterlife indicated by the fact that he appears with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration very clearly as reported in all four Gospels. So, Shell, I would just say that that answer, somebody saying in Quora that Moses did not or will not go to heaven, no, it's just just wrong. They're wrong on that point. And it might surprise our listeners to hear that sometimes people who speak on the internet are wrong. Yes, this person was. And then a final question from Asia who asks, God told Noah to build an ark for himself and his family. It's like other people were not included. So were other people not supposed to or allowed to enter, or did they refuse and not want to enter, as many preachers say? Um, Asia, the sense that we have, both from the book of Genesis and from later mentions, such as in First and Second Peter of Noah in the ark, when Peter mentions it later, that that world was condemned because they didn't want the rescue that God offered, that they that they uh, didn't take a, a, they didn't avail themselves, and so uh, I would say it was because they didn't want to. Now maybe once the rain started falling and the water started rising, maybe they wanted to get on the ark, but by then it was too late. By the way, the the Bible in nowhere gives this picture of people trying to swim to the ark to be rescued or banging on the door. The Bible nowhere gives that picture. Preachers sometimes speculate about that, but the Bible just doesn't speak about it. Uh, I think it's entirely possible that people just thought Noah was a fool and they had no space for what he did. And it speaks to the corruption of the earth that they rejected this rescue. I I think that anybody who was truly repentant and believing in the coming judgment and wanted to be rescued could have been rescued along with Noah, but that there were none. Uh, They rejected. And that's why God started humanity basically all over again with Noah in his family. Uh, That's the best answer I would give to that, Asia. Well, folks, that's going to conclude it with our uh, live stream today. So pleased that you could join us. I want to give thanks to our moderator and everything that went well today. Uh, So pleased to see you all and hope to join you again next week. God willing, and if we live, I'll be joining you a week from today, uh, Thursday, 12 noon, West Coast time in the United States, whatever time it is for your time zone. God bless you and thank you for joining us today. It's been great to see you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.